Thank you for downloading this Lunchtime Talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, the Art Gallery's Curator of Contemporary Art, Lee Robb, discusses the practice of Lindy Lee in the 2018 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art, Divided Worlds. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's great to see so many friendly faces and well-known faces. Um, I know many of you, most of you, but um, for everyone else, my name's Lee Robb. I'm the Curator of Contemporary Art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And yeah, this is my first uh, outdoor public uh, lunchtime talk, and maybe it is for everyone else as well. So luckily, the the perfect Adelaide weather is with us, So and uh, it never rains, so I'm sure we'll be fine for the next 20 minutes, half an hour. <laughs> never say never. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a great privilege to be able to speak about Lindy Lee. Um, many of you will know her work. We have, we have works of hers in the collection um, from the early 90s. Um, and, of course, we have three examples of her work currently on display and part of the Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art and part of Divided Worlds. So the the ones that you will recognise are the story of Tru Chen, um, which are the works on paper downstairs, um, and uh, accompanied by a dragon's pearl uh, sculpture, a bronze sculpture, and then of course this um, incredible monumental egg, I guess, behind us, which is how Lindy Lee likes to describe it: the life of stars, which was created in. Uh, over the last over the last year, really, completed in 2017, and it's uh, polished steel and perforated with over 80,000 individual holes, which were handmarked by the artist in Shanghai during winter for three weeks, spending 12 hours a day, and she marked them with uh, you know with uh, sticky dots. She, she said, each of them were marked with sticky dots, and then they were um, then they were obviously drilled by the fabricator in uh, in the, the Shanghai foundry. So that's uh, that's a little bit of the the construction behind it. But you know, one of the things um, you know, it's it's a it's a great privilege to talk about Lindy Lee because for many of us who who studied art history i remember lindy lee was one of the first artists that i actually studied in um you know contemporary australian art in brisbane and um and she was already quite a force in the 90s. And um, so it's really exciting to see the arc and the trajectory of her practice over 30 years. And I think there are you know, key turning points, points which are quite transcendental and points which coincide with her um, taking up uh, Zen Buddhism, becoming a Zen student. Um, and these these particular moments. So I might actually, even though I think her work is timeless and universal and tries to stretch beyond the here and now, um, I think uh, we might start a little bit chronologically with uh, you know Lindy Lee's um, bi biography, where she came from, how she came to be making the work that she's making now. And um, Lindy Lee was born in 1954 in Brisbane, and she grew up in quite a lot of uh, different various suburbs of Brisbane. And she was born to Chinese immigrant parents. Her father immigrated in 1953 
to Brisbane. Um, but he was not... Um, he came alone. His father was already in Australia then. But because there was a... Between the white Australia policy and the, um, the, the ensuing revolution in China, there was an arrangement which it had to be one for one. So in order for Lindy Lee's father to immigrate to Australia, his father, her grandfather, had to return to China. But on his journey over, um, the rules changed and the revolution was in course. And so both him and his father were here. But it meant that Lindy's mother and, um, and her two brothers were not able to come out to Australia until 1953. And, um, and then so they, you know, they, were, they, were apart, um, they were apart for many years. Um, and sorry, it was 1946, I'm sorry, 1946 that her father first immigrated to Australia and then her mother and brothers, two brothers joined, joined the family in Brisbane in 1953. And then a year later in 1954, Lindy Lee was born. And then, um, and she has another sister who was born after her. So she's one of four. And I think these, it's, she, she often speaks about her upbringing in Queensland, in Brisbane, and, um, and going to school and that feeling of, uh, you know, excruciating difference, you know, being Chinese, um, but being one of very few Chinese um, students at her school. And, um, but then on the weekends, going to, um, you know, going to the Chinese club and most of the, her friends there, people her age um, and slightly older, had all either grown up in China or Hong Kong, whereas she'd sort of been born and grown up and, um, and didn't, um, didn't speak Mandarin. Um, so, so, you know, she, she talks about this moment of looking into a mirror when she was about six years old. And I think, you know, the mirror will come back um, in many ways. And she said that she had that moment of, of looking into the mirror and, you, you know, wanting to be a blonde surfy chick and realising that that was something that she couldn't be, but then not really being able to sort of reconcile, um, you know, re reconcile her identity. And, you know, it's interesting because when she's asked about um, why or if she, you know, always knew she was going to be an artist, she said that, you know, there are, there are questions that the universe throws at you and that drawing and making art is a way to claim your universe is the way that she's described it. She's, she's very poetic. There are many great Lindy Lee quotes, actually. And, um, and, uh, and she said, but it was more than drawing. And one of the most important things, and um, she said, if she's truthful with herself, the reason that she wanted to be an artist is that she's been continuously pursued by what it means to consider and contemplate the self or to think about identity. And, um, but identity and, and I guess the story of, uh, I, I guess, difference and, and perhaps duality is something that she's engaged with a lot. And many of you will know the work that is in the gallery downstairs if you walk through Roy Ananda's extraordinary Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> um, exploded map. You'll come to uh, a brand new work that Lindy Lee's made, which is called The Story of True Chien. Now, there's, there's, there's quite a few important tenets in that. 
Um, but what's interesting, going back to Lindy Lee's upbringing in Brisbane, is that she went to art school um, in, in Brisbane as well in the 80s and started exhibiting in 1986. She had a, an early exhibition at Rosalind Oxley Gallery and has had over 20 shows there now. And, um, and what she, how she was trying to reconcile, um, um, you know, growing up in a multicultural place, but also the duality of her identity, was to look to the great masters of the Renaissance and to European, um, uh, you know, to, to the European masters. So she, it was a time of appropriation in Australian art, sort of late 80s, early 90s, and, and really the great postmodern turn in which many artists um, you know, were recycling, uh, appropriating, reusing um, uh, images um, by other artists and, and um, inserting them into their works. And Lindy Lee was one of the great sort of Australian proponents of that. And many of her early works, she's famous for taking works from um, Raphael, Da Vinci, Van Gogh, um, Caravaggio, and taking portraits from famous, uh, famous paintings. Often she doesn't like to explain which ones in particular, um, and, uh, and then would photocopy them over and over again until they started to disappear. And in a way, I see that as a sort of performative act as well, as well as, a, as an artistic act of trying to sort of erase some of those really burdensome histories of European, um, of European art history. Um, but it was also for her, you know, the, the repetition and the disappearance and the invisibility was also a core construct in, in her thinking about her own, her own practice. Um, and... She would often use, um, she would often sort of cover them in a sort of wash of monochromatic colour. She was very influenced by Ad Reinhardt and was, um, and you know, you can, you know, the, the monochrome and minimalism were also forces that she was working with, but I think eventually pushed against. Because in 1995, she, um, she was granted an AsiaLink residency because she'd, you know, through all through her studies and um, and her early career as an artist, she she really hadn't connected at all with her Chinese identity, and she she sort of had a breaking point where where she wanted to learn um, traditional Chinese calligraphy. So she applied and she got an Asia Link residency, and she went and studied at the Academy of Beijing, and she studied with a Chinese um, a, a master calligrapher. And, um, and, you know, at first she was like, oh, I felt like I was on the right track. This all made sense. He was teaching me about, you know, the good mark, the energetic mark, you know, the, you know, the energy that is sort of contained in the, in the, in the, in the sort of the gesture of the ink, of flung ink. And, um, and, you know, but then she started to practice it and she found that, you know, this, you know, separating out the good mark and the bad mark was something that she just... She just she she didn't she didn't want to be sort of tied into such a um, a sort of constrictive ideology of how to make art um, that there was something that could be defined as a good mark and something which could be defined as a bad mark. So um, so she you know so she actually um, from from that she 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 came back um, and then a few years later applied for another residency which would take her to Tibet to study Taoist. Um, um, you know, she wanted to study Taoist and 
Zen Buddhism as well. Um, she was already um, in the, the sort of early 90s. She'd started studying Zen Buddhism and wanted to figure out how she could sort of bring this into her practice. So she went to Tibet and she um, and in her studies she discovered the that um, that certain Taoist monks, after meditating, after you know an extended period of meditation, um, there was a, a practice which was called flung ink, where they would take a, a you know almost a a bowl of ink and then throw it on a page, um, and um, and the mark that was made embodied, you know all of the universe in some ways. So, you know, these, these ideas are, you know, incredibly, um, you know, complex and not being a practicing Buddhist, I'm really just channeling and translating some of the quotes from Lindy Lee in her own description. Um, although it's definitely made me want to study it, I have to say. But um, from, from that point, she, um, it was, uh, she, she started doing two things in her work. She started bringing her own family, images of her own family, photographs that she'd gone through, retrieved from her archives from her mother and her father, and, um, and showed them together in this incredible work which was called um, From Birth to Death, which was shown at Artspace in Sydney in 2003. And... In it, she, she again had used these reproductions, photocopies of, and she'd sort of blown them up, but it turned them into, um, into uh, almost like pages of, of a book, which, like an accordion style, which were opening up, but it filled this entire gallery with images of her, of her mother when she was young, of her, of her brothers, of her father, of her grandparents, and so you'd look out at this sort of sea of faces and all of them were covered in a screen of red. And you know, for for Lindy Lee, when she talks about the use of colour, it's it's um, everything she says is purposeful. She never uses any colour or any material unless there is a, a deep, profound connection to that material or colour. And for her, red is symbolising the body, and often and something very corporeal and of this world. And often, when she uses blue, she um, is thinking about it um, as the spirit. And so, when she uses purple, she is actually mixing those two ideas. Um, and um, but in that particular occasion, that was the use of um, of red on that occasion, connecting to her family and to her bloodlines and to her heritage. And um, and. Shortly after, the year later, she was invited to um, to Beijing and to the Australian Embassy there to present an exhibition. Um, and she decided that she would take those same photographs, turn them into huge banners, and um, which would line this, um, you know, quite a sort of promenade um, at the at the um, embassy in Beijing, which featured photographs of her grandmother, her father, and um, and again the same family members. And she said for her that was an incredible moment of, you know, in a sense a type of reconciliation because some of the guards and security guards who were working at the embassy um, would go up and touch her grandmother's face and just say how beautiful she was. And she said it was, you know, this sort of incredible moment when she started going back to China where she didn't feel Chinese and couldn't speak um, either Mandarin or Cantonese um, but and was so Australian. But then when she would return to Australia, she um, was so definitively Chinese. But she said that that moment at the Australian Embassy in Beijing, and that was about 2004, um, was, was also... Um, you know, really, really important for her. Um, it was around the same time that um, that she she started um, uh, 
connecting with two other important stories, I guess, or two tenets of or ideas in, in Buddhism. One of them is the net of Indra. And I'm going to come back to that story when we talk about this um, here. But it's, you know, the idea that there is a sort of fabric or a net that connects us all, but is um, very porous. Um, and um, I think you can almost sort of see that in um, the life of stars behind us. But she also became very interested in the story of Truchien. Now, probably most of you know the story of Truchien. But would anyone like me to tell it again? <laughs> Great, okay. Um, so, in according to Lindy, um, in um, Zen Buddhism, there are things called, or stories, called a koan. And a koan is often referred to as a meditation puzzle. Um, it's also something which is uh, represents a paradox or a dilemma. And... The story of Truchien was of particular significance to Lindy Lee. It describes Chien, a young girl, and her cousin, also her best friend, and um, who played together very beautifully. Um, imagine the story is taking place in a small remote Chinese village. And um, from early on, Chien's father said, you know, you and your, your cousin will, will be betrothed. You know, you're, you're perfect for each other and, um, you know, in the future you'll be married. So um, many years later, when she was about 17 years old, um, out of nowhere, uh, her father said, um, actually, here is your husband. He's a, a merchant and, um, I'm, you know, I'm very happy about this union. And... Um, you know, um, you'll be married tomorrow. And her beloved um, was was so distressed by this that during the night he sort of fled in a boat. And if you follow the images when you go downstairs in the gallery, you can actually see all of the passages of this story play out as episodes, almost in scrolls um, around the room. And um, so you see the boat departing in the in the night. And... Um, but Chien, um, you know, Chien didn't want to be didn't want to be married off. She wanted to be with her, her beloved, and so she went with him and um, escaped into the night with him, and uh, and left her left her father and and disappeared. Together, they you know they had a great life and had children and were very happy. But um, you know, a couple of decades later. She, she said, you know, I really need to reconcile with my father. I, I can't, you know, I, I need to see him and I need to apologise. I need to seek his forgiveness. Um, and I need to return to my home, to my village and see him. And, um, you know, uh, her beloved agreed. And he said, let me just go ahead of you. Well, you know, so they, you can see them come back by boat and you can see her husband approach uh, the door of their father and um, her father comes out and, you know, her husband was very nervous, obviously, you know, um, the wrath of having taken his daughter away from him. And, um, but instead he was, you know, greeted with, um, you know, great kindness and sympathy. And, um, and Chen's father said, I'm so glad to see you. You know, the night that you left, um, Chen got very sick and she stayed in bed and um, she, she's almost turned into a ghost. She hasn't left her bed for nearly 20 years. Um, and, uh, you know, Chen's husband was like, no, what are you talking about? She's, she's just in, in the boat behind us. Um, you know, I'll, I'll bring her to you. 
Oh, I'm, I'm coming too far forward, sorry. Um, it's feedback. Um, and at that, at that moment, um, Chen's husband goes inside and he sees this, you know, ghost of a figure of, a, of Qian that he doesn't recognize. And she is indeed, you know, in bed, uh, uh, you know. Um, and, um, and he said, well, um, no, but, you know, you have to come and see uh, Qian. She has been with me. We've had a very happy life and she seeks your forgiveness. Um, let's go and meet her. And there's this moment where um, the... Uh, the bedridden Qian rises and the other Qian comes in from outside and they hug and, um, and they embrace each other. And you can see this in the final um, image that's, um, that's depicted in the, in the suite of works by Lindy Lee downstairs. And, you know, that moment of embrace of these two Qians, uh, you know, begs the question, who is the true Qian? And for an artist who has spent her whole life grappling with duality and divided identity, for her this is something which has recurred in her practice many, many times. And she's, she's used this story and those images um, in, in, in her practice because she says, you know, the, the idea of, um, you know, who is the true Qian, it's something that everyone battles with. You know, there's always a moment at different points in our lives when um, we've taken one path or another and, you know, it, it, she said it's, it's, a, it's a koan or it's a, or a meditation dilemma because it's something that only each person can individually grapple with and understand. But she says there is an answer there, so I'll... <laughs> Prizes for someone who gives me the best answer, um, but but no, I think it's um, it, it it is something which you know is a deeply personal um, grappling or a conundrum, I think, um, and one that everyone can connect with in some shape or form as well. Um, but um, so coming so coming back from the the story of uh, Qian and and um, these multiple you know dualities and different identities. Um, Lindy Lee was grappling with, you know, what is, you know, what is sort of elemental or what is, you know, what for her to sort of represent the self or to think about um, her meditations, how, you know, how can she, how can she engender this in her materials, in her work, in her art. And so you'll notice if you look through Lindy Lee's um, uh, last 30 years of practice that there's always um, you know that there is actually quite a lot of color a lot of color in her monochromes reds blues um, purples uh, turquoise um, blacks and and um, and but then in about 2012 she um, she wanted to come back remember I was telling you about how she tried to learn calligraphy um, but then um, but then it didn't work for her but then discovered that that the the act of you know flinging ink could be something that could be part of a meditation practice so she um, so she she wanted to also think about the elemental and you know fire has always been an important part of her work if you notice the works downstairs the Truchian works they um, they're perforated there are you can see that there are holes that are in them that you can almost look through into another dimension or another realm or you know um, behind the work and um, and she would make those holes with um, with a soldering iron with fire essentially and um, 
and uh, but she wanted to, you know, fire for, you know, fire is, you know, something very sort of important in her practice because she says, you know, when we think of fire, we think of a flame, but actually every flame needs a fuel to burn, you know, whatever fuel that is, um, whether that's wood or... Um, so, in I guess in a more conceptual sense, she was like, you know, what are the things that are, what are the fuels, what are the things that are sort of fueling my ideas in, in, making, in making work? And um, so she ended up working with a foundry in Brisbane, UAP, um, who also were involved in the production of this work here. But um, it was about 2013. And she, um, she, she wanted to work with molten bronze, you know, as close as she could get with fire. And she wanted to make her own version of this sort of flung ink, but instead she wanted to make sort of flung bronze. But um, you'll know that actually if you do fling bronze, it actually completely um, disperses and almost sort of explodes on impact. So she actually had to sort of pour it and sort of ladle it out in these different forms and for her every time she does those 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 um those works she meditates beforehand and then she pours and ladles out and where the you know where where the shapes sort of fall on the you know on the ground um those are th those are the shapes that it that it takes takes on I don't even know if it's about chance. I was asking her, do you feel like this is connected to the idea of chance in art, something artists have embraced a lot? And, and she said, no, it's, it's very purposeful, actually. You know, you know, in a way, she's channeling the universe when she's pouring or flinging or, you know, flinging the ink, if she uses ink, or pouring the bronze. And, um, and uh, so she made a series of works um, with with bronze, but they were two dimensional, and she would polish them. She said it was always a bit disappointing after she'd pour this, you know, bright, bright orange red molten bronze onto the floor, and it just looked, you know, she just wanted to to find a way to capture that in in a work, and so, and then when when they dried, they would look sort of, you know a bit dirty and speckly and you know if you've ever seen dried bronze before it's polished it's you know it, it doesn't look like anything remarkable um but she polished all of them back until they they shone um and um and then has you know displayed those in in different um in different versions um but she still wanted to make a physical she wanted to make something that was physical not two-dimensional something that you know occupied space and so the work that you can see down in um, down in the gallery, the um, uh, from the Dragon's Pearl series, she made multiple versions of these very amorphous shaped um, bronze um, sculptures. And this is something that she only revealed here in Adelaide. I've actually never heard her say, repeat this story anywhere else. I can't find it in any writing on her. I can't find it in any online interviews or anything like that about how she ended up making, making these um, bronze molten works. And, um, and she sort of revealed it, revealed it when um, I, I included one of these in a, in, or a few of them in the Versus Rodin exhibition. So you might have seen the smaller versions of them, the maquettes, before she scaled up to make the ones that, that you can, the one you can see now in the gallery. And, um, and I was like, Lindy, explain to me, how did you make it? Like, when I look at it, it looks like it was made from wax, which maybe you've, you've, um, you've sort of um, burnt or applied heat to, to sort of mould the edges to make these very sort of sinewy, um, amorphous shapes. 
and um, but but I but you know that doesn't look quite right because you'd be able to you know you wouldn't be able to control it, and and I was like, but if it was flung, if it was something at even a maquette size, if you flung that amount of bronze, it would just completely um, uh, you know uh, disperse, and you would have no structural integrity. You wouldn't have an actual form. It would it would dissipate. It would disappear. And, um, and, and she was like, well, actually, we tried so many different things. You know, we tried, it, we tried to... Cause she's like, I needed to create some sort of vat in which I could suspend the form. So I needed a liquid that was viscous enough that it could actually still move and still capture this gesture, the pure energy of, of flinging this amount of bronze into a vat of liquid. But it, it had to still hold together and hold itself. And, um, and she was like, we tried everything. We, you know, we tried different temperatures and different liquids and all sorts of things. And she's like, you'll never guess what it was that actually allowed me to create the sculpture. And she's like, we had to create a giant bath of custard, of warm custard. And, um, and that was the perfect uh, you know, combination of heat and viscosity that would allow her to throw this molten bronze into a vat and that it would move and take form but um, but would still sort of hold itself together so unfortunately I hope it doesn't mean that every time you look at that sculpture you'll think of custard because it's a lot more subliminal than that but um, but you know it's it is always very fascinating to she said it was years of experimenting to, to even be able to get it to that working with foundries to do it so um, you know she's she um, she you know she felt for her it was a sort of study as well so it was after that that, um, that she started working on The Life of Stars, which brings us to this point here. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I spoke to her yesterday. She was in Shanghai at the airport on the way to Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, I said, look, there's, you know, there's still a few things that I, you know, I've tried to, you know, read a lot. I'm trying to understand some of the different um, impulses around this work and, and where it sits for you. And, you know, I just wanted to know, you know, why is it an egg as opposed to a perfect sphere? Or, you know, like, is, are there uh, golden proportions? Is there, is there something in, in, you know, in the scale or the shape of it? And, and she said, well, actually... It was, you know, 25 years ago when she had this moment of, you know, transcendence in her own Zen Buddhist practice. Um, and she said it's taken 25 years to come to this point, to make this work. And she said it's almost like a gestation that's taken my, you know, my whole career and lifetime as an artist to, to sort of create this form. And she's like, so it's only now as I'm saying this to you that I realise that it's an egg, you know. <laughs> so she's, she's like, uh, um, but, um, and, and I said, but what about the scale? You know, it's six metres high. It's, you, you know, why, why, you know, why that size? Why not larger or smaller? And, and, and she said, well, a lot of things are still intuitive. But she said, I wanted it to be something which was larger than life you know it's more than you know probably three times the size of an average human but not so large that you had to be so far away to be able to see it in what you know in you know altogether. so she said she wanted it to be somewhere between larger than life and but not too monumental that that it actually sort of you know um drove you away in some way or didn't give you any sense of connection. She said the connection is really important. And 
that, that, that idea of duality comes back in again with the perforations and with the fact that during the day, and she described it beautifully, she said during the day the, the, the sculpture will reflect the pageantry of the everyday, of the world around it, and by night it will um, embody the cosmos. So, you know, from, and, and you can see that there can, can, if you sort of follow it, there are concentric circles as well. Um, and so the concentric circles also connect with each other. And so it shows you this interconnected web, which again connects to the story of Indra's web, um, Indra's net, sorry, if you, if you want to investigate that further. Um, and, and that, she said, there also had to be a certain amount of, um, of, of holes so that you really got that sense of porousness. Um, and when it, it had the, the foundry maestro, the foundry master in Shanghai that she works with, um, Mr. Shozen, um, she said she'd worked on a different version as a test before this where she'd done 30,000 dots. And he'd said that 30,000 was the maximum amount of dots that she was allowed to do. And she's like... But, you know, she's like, I don't think he could tell once I was over 60,000, you know. <laughs> so she's like, so she's like, uh, she thinks there's about 80, over 80,000 holes, individual holes in, in that, in that, um, in that work. And, um, and obviously it's sort of lit from within. So by night it also, um, you know, projects like a life of stars of its own. Um, I think maybe I've spoken too long. Um, uh, I might just open up for some, some questions now, um, and we'll go from there. Thank you. I'll come to you next. I wonder if I could ask you, uh, now I've forgotten what I Oh, yes. How was it transported here? It's so large. How did it get here? Do you happen to know that? Yes, it came in a giant crate, which was so big that it had to live down the side of the building for, until we unpacked it. It's a crate which is about uh, seven metres long and about five, four, metre, four and a half metres uh, wide and deep. And inside is a stainless steel cradle. Um, which it is transported in, and there's a hole underneath, and it took uh, two cranes and most of the night to install it. I know that the artist and um, Nick Mitzvich, our director, and many other people, including Erin Davidson and uh, the curator of the biennial, Erica Green, were all here until uh, four in the morning um, because it had to be done... Uh, you know, um, after hours and when there was no foot traffic and it took two cranes um, to, to, to place it. So, yes, it, it, it came on a very big semi-trailer uh, is the answer from, uh, from Sydney um, and it was flown from... It was made in Beijing, flown into Sydney and then transported here. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll, I'll come to you in a minute. I'll just come to... I'll do the... Yeah. Uh, very interested in the concept of the Indra's net. That sounds to me like it might be an Indian story, whereas she's referring a lot to Chinese. But the name Indra, that seems Indian to me. I, I have some notes on that. Let me just check. But in the meantime, I'll take another question while I look that up. Where will it go after the biennial? Oh, now, this is a question I like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that I can. So um, now let's just let's just try something. I would love a show of hands. How many people think that it should stay here? That it belongs here? Ah, oh, look at that. 
<laughs> get, get involved. <laughs> I think that's a that's a hundred percent. So it's. It's a, it's a good question because um, it is a work that we would like to keep here. So we are starting a campaign to keep it here. Um, if anyone wants to speak to me directly about donating towards it, please do, um, or to Sam East in Benefaction. But we'll also, because it would be nice for everyone to be able to um, support it in whatever way is possible. So after Easter and after the opening of um, Colours of Impressionism, we'll have a donation box which will be inside uh, the vestibule right here um, so that we can also gladly um, accept uh, public donations because we would also love to keep it here. Lindy said as soon as it was here it felt like it was you know the perfect beacon for the city and I think it, it does something very different to the neoclassical um, uh, facade and uh, columns behind it, disrupts it um, but also you know is you know is such a sort of universal piece but um, that is our hope. Yeah, we want to keep it forever. This one, this particular work? No, no, but Lindy. Yes. So the question was, has Lindy exhibited in Brisbane Galleries? Yes, she has. She's um, She had a major solo show at the University of Queensland Art Museum um, uh, in about 2012. And she's very well collected in every single state collection in the country. Um, and, you know, and, and has had a huge amount of solo shows and commissions around Victoria and New South Wales. Her, her CV is about 29 pages long. So um, I, will, I will leave that to you to, to have a look. But she's, you know, and she recently worked on, in, on an installation in Chinatown in Sydney and has also worked on a very beautiful um, uh, project in regional Victoria, which was to construct a sort of a contemporary uh, meeting Chinese house, but a, a meeting place. So she she's she's done a huge amount of projects. Yeah. Um, who? I'll come back to your net question. I wish Rusty was here. <laughs> the work on paper says it's uh, on burnt paper. Apart from the soldering burnt holes, is the entire sheet of paper burnt in some way? And if so, how did is that brought about? Um, for the for the works that are downstairs in the gallery, as far as I know, those those were created through printmaking process, and then they uh, I think they're covered in a layer a wash of ink, and then perforated with a soldering iron. So I don't think the entire page is burnt. When she spo speaks about often her material, she just describes as fire. So um, that's often through the the soldering iron. But sometimes she will um, uh, smoke. You know also run a sort of uh, a lit torch over it um, which can create a sort of smoky effect which I've seen in other works I don't think it's in this one um, but yeah um, this is uh, the, uh, the question is how many versions of this has she made um, it is part of an edition but um, there is one which is in uh, China and then this one. So, so far, two only exist in the world at the moment. There, it is a, an edition um, of three plus two artist proofs, APs, but at the moment only two exist because they would need to be commissioned to, to, be, to be fabricated, which because they're such expensive... Um, things to make, sculptures to make, but um, we would 
hope and ask that there isn't another one in South Australia and that there won't be another one in an Australian public collection. So that's something that um, we're, you know, uh, that's that's part of what we're discussing, if we're able to keep it. Yes, but it's a very good question. Yeah. Okay, now do I have to answer the Indra's net question? Yeah, yeah. I might tell you privately. I'm going to tell you privately. <laughs> I don't want to get it wrong, <laughs> but thank you very much and thanks for your attention and I hope you love the work as much as me. Oh, there's a question. Oh, Just out of curiosity, how much would it be? How much? Oh, we're not, I, I, know, I do know how much. It's, um, it's, yes, it's quite a considerable amount, quite a, but generally we're not allowed to talk about those exact amounts. Sorry, it is a good question. Oh, now this is another good question. So, if if we were to buy it, I think we would want to keep it here at least until the next biennial, um, and um, and then when we get Adelaide Contemporary, it would be the first public sculpture, um, a first outdoor public sculpture in the Sculpture Garden for the new Adelaide Contemporary. So that is also our hope for it. So yes, that sounds like a good plan, right? Yeah. yeah. Very good plan.